The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, it began like uh, a morning, like so many others, on the banks of the Jordan. John, uh, a wild-looking character with his camel-high tunic and leather belt, his, his long, shaggy hair made his way from the d- desert hideout to the riverbank and once again preached a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he didn't mince any words. Crowds from Jerusalem and the entire surrounding area of Judea showed up in growing numbers. Convicted of their sins, they publicly walked forward to John. And then stripping off their outer clothes, they waded into the Jordan where John either poured water on their bodies as the earliest icon show, or he plunged them beneath the muddy waters. It was a public display of repentance, of sorrow for sin, and a desire to be made right with God. It marked a new beginning, a fresh start, a rebirth. And by all accounts, what was happening at the Jordan River was extraordinary. This was not some private event. No, no, it was a public acknowledgement that things were not right between the penitents and God, that they were sinners, distant from God, and that things had to change, that life could simply not continue as it was. And as they lined up, no one was making excuses. No one, no one said, oh, please look the other way. This is just between God and me. No one was making comparisons or shrugging their shoulders saying, well, I'm not perfect, but after all, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Or, you know, God understands. After all, I'm only human. No, it was a public confession, an external right that expressed an inner disposition, change of disposition of the heart, and the result was the forgiveness of sins. Something transformative was going on, something that raised the eyebrows of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So, as we know from John's Gospel, they sent a commission to figure out who John was and and why people were flocking to him. I mean, significant numbers of people from a wide cross-section of the population made their way to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And strikingly, This is how Mark proposes to begin to tell the good news of Jesus Christ, God's Son. By way of contrast, Matthew first establishes the historical ancestry of Jesus to prove that he is the bona fide, the legitimate Messiah. Luke gives us the background story to Jesus coming into the world with great detail. He he narrates the events around John the Baptist's a miraculous birth and the, the angelic visit to, to Mary. And, and then he, he describes Jesus' birth and how the shepherds come. 
John, on the other hand, reaches back far into eternity past to help us to understand that the unique identity of Jesus is he's no one less than God's Son made flesh. It's only Mark who leaves all the foundational work about the Incarnation aside. He omits any historical or theological explanation, and he turns the focus directly on what's happening on the banks of the Jordan. Mark invites us to enter the scene, to listen to the call for repentance, to witness the crowds coming from Jerusalem, the whole Judean countryside, as they stream to the Jordan for baptism by John. For Mark, this is where the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, God's Son, begins. It is a critical moment in the drama of Israel's history. All eyes are on the prophet, and the connection between the Old Testament prophet Elijah is clear enough. So scripture is being fulfilled in, in their day, and yet John is quick to point out that this isn't about him, that someone else is coming who is far more important, someone more powerful, more worthy. True, John baptizes with water, but the one who's coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so there's a sense of building anticipation. Who in the world is John referring to? Well, right on cue, Mark narrates that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And that might sound as if Mark is simply picking up the storyline, but it is a significant detail. Nazareth is in, in the far north of the country. Up until now, it seems that those who came to be baptized were more local. It was only about 34 kilometers from Jerusalem to the Jordan. In contrast, Jesus is walking all the way from Galilee, a distance of well over 100 kilometers. So this is no longer a day like any other. There's an intentionality about Jesus coming that is striking. He's coming for a reason. And Jesus joins that steady flow of people who come for baptism. Surprisingly, yet intentionally, Jesus is lost in the crowd. Lost in the sense that he doesn't stand out. He's, he's a Palestinian Jew, like so many that were standing on the banks of the J Jordan. And other than his Galilean accent, no one would even have turned a sideward glance to him. No, he's just another human being. The point to notice is that this is how Mark has Jesus enter human history. By this time, Jesus is about 30 years old. He had spent his life in relative obscurity, working as a laborer with his hands. But now the time has come. And if the other evangelists have, have spent time to talk about the incomprehensible mystery of the Incarnation, here we get a glimpse of what the English poet Yeats calls the uncontrollable mystery of Christ. He defies human explanation and human expectations. If Jesus' private life began with something as surprising as his birth in the cattle trough, his public life begins with something even more disturbing, a baptism of repentance.
It's no wonder that some first-century heretics denied that Jesus was really the Son of God. Instead, they contrived a theory that he was just an ordinary sinful man who was adopted to be God's Son in the extraordinary event of baptism. No wonder John the Baptist resists, as Matthew tells us, because when Jesus asks to be baptized, he responds, no, 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 I, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. It's Matthew's way of insisting that there's something wrong with the picture if we think that Jesus in some way is just another man, a sinful man needing forgiveness. And as the Gospels unfold, it becomes crystal clear that Jesus has no sin whatsoever. In fact, at one point in his ministry, uh, Jesus asks, which of you dares to convict me of sin? And no one stood up to the plate to convict him or to accuse him. And so the question persists, why did Jesus need a baptism of repentance? What was his sin? Why did he need to be purified? Well, some earlier church writers suggest that what was going on is that Jesus is simply purifying the water of baptism for his people, and there's something beautiful about that. Others suggest that Jesus did this to validate John's baptismal claim as the forerunner of the Messiah. Still others that Jesus was simply leaving us an example to follow. And yet it, it has to be said that all of these suggestions fail to do justice to this momentous event, particularly if we recognize the sheer importance this moment had for Jesus himself. Later on in Mark, when, when Jesus is questioned about his authority uh, to preach and to cure sick people, Jesus turns the question around and he asks the Pharisees what they thought about John's baptism. He asks, was John's baptism from God or of human origin? And clearly then, Jesus recognized John's baptism as something that came from God himself. And then consider how, how Jesus identifies his ministry, and particularly his death on the cross, with a form of baptism as well. In Luke 12, he says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. So clearly, the baptism in the Jordan River is linked somehow to both his divinely given commission as the Messiah, as the Redeemer, and his death on the cross. Baptism is a gift that Jesus has received from his Father. Baptism also pays, paves the way for his suffering and death. There can be no doubt that the purpose of Jesus' life was to deal with sin, that he came to, to reconcile sinners with God. The meaning of Jesus' life is to break down the barriers of resistance and hostility that separate us from God. The question is, how would Jesus effectively deal with sin? It's not enough just to teach or to model another way of life. The mystery of sin is far deeper than mere morality. It cannot be cured by education. Sin needs a far more radical treatment. And when we see it in this light, it becomes clear why Jesus was baptized. 
Just as he didn't die for any personal sins that he had committed, so he wasn't baptized because he was a sinner either. Rather, in his baptism, we have a surprising expression of Jesus' solidarity with sinners. He wasn't baptized to leave us an example. Jesus was baptized because he identified himself with sinners and began from that moment to take their sins upon himself publicly. There are a number of reasons why the framers of the lectionary give us the readings from Genesis 1 and Mark 1. Genesis 1 tells the story, of course, of creation, this collaborative work of Father, Son, and Spirit, something that I'll come back to. However, it's been pointed out that, that there's a very real sense in which Jesus is now the new Adam, the new representative of his people, the one who inaugurates the new creation as he comes up from the Jordan. It is as the second Adam that he enters into human history, human experience in deep solidarity with sinners right from the waters of baptism that symbolize nothing less than a watery grave. Yet, death could not be the last word. It is a baptism of repentance. And while the Greek word for repentance is, is to change one's priorities, to change one's thinking, a restructuring of life, the Hebrew word is very graphic. It is a, a physical returning to God. The Hebrew word is, is concrete. It's dirt under your nails. It's earthy. It's, it's embodied. The people of God either walked with God or they turned and they followed after. They walked after other gods. And so much of their history was a going back and forth. And, and the prophets consistently called them, pleaded with them to return, to come back, to do a 180-degree U-turn and to come back to God, their faithful covenant God who was waiting for them. But what Israel needed to realize was that they could never return to God by themselves. Through their sin, they had disqualified themselves. And sin had also hamstrung their abilities and they could not reach God on their own. They would never have enough power. They would never have sufficient will. The whole daily, weekly, monthly, yearly sacrificial system was a, a reminder that sacrifices had to be made again and again and again, and that blood had to be shed again and again, and that life had to be taken again and again, that it was never enough. And precisely because Israel could never return to God, God came down to them. God came to them as a baby, and now in this pivotal moment in Israel's history, this child has grown to an adult and God comes to them again. His son enters that stream of human history, of sinful human history, and enters a deep, surprising solidarity with humanity. Jesus made his way from Nazareth to Galilee. Uh, in G G Galilee, and on that day that seemed so inconsequential, so normal, when crowds were coming from Jerusalem and the surrounding communities, Jesus stands in line for a baptism of repentance, for a public embodied act that said, 
I want to return to God. I will join others on the way back to God. In fact, I will make it happen. And with that, he walked into the Jordan to be baptized. And then, then suddenly, something completely extraordinary took place. Heaven itself opens. Now, think about this. The story of the birth of Christ is filled with amazing accounts of angels, of inspired songs, of, of a baby dancing in the womb of an old lady, of a stars in the heavens that led wise men from a distant country to where Jesus lay. But when that's over, there's silence for 30 years. And it looks like everything's gone back to normal until this very day on the banks of the Jordan. And Mark recounts that just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens split wide open. The Greek is very strong. The, heaven, the heavens are torn open and the spirit descending like a dove. And it came and it rested on him. And then a voice from heaven could be heard. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Heaven is ripped open violently. The Spirit descends on the Son, and the Father speaks. Here's where the connection with Genesis comes into focus. The Father spoke to bring galaxies into existence. The Spirit hovered over the waters and, brood, and broods life during the first week. And it's during that week that a man emerges from the creative, powerful hands of God. And God looks and speaks, and he says everything is good. It's very good. But now, as Jesus rises from the water, the Father looks and speaks and says, You are my son. You belong to me. You are the beloved. I love you. With you, I am well pleased. I am thrilled with you. Not simply, wow, this is good, but no, you are beloved. It's hard to grasp the significance of this moment, both for Jesus and for us. We, we celebrate the baptism of Jesus on the backside of Christmas, and so the baptism hardly seems important. I mean, all the decorations are put away now, the party's over, and unless churches follow a liturgical calendar, it's, it's doubtful that John's baptism of Jesus would even make it into a Sunday morning sermon so soon after Christmas. At best, it might seem to be an interesting footnote in salvation history. But nothing could be further from the truth, however. I mean, think about it. There is no angelic announcement this time. No, no, God himself speaks. The long silence is over. There's a profoundly new relationship between God and humanity. And the Spirit, God the Spirit himself, descends. 
This pivotal moment on the banks of the Jordan inaugurates a time of grace unlike Israel had ever seen before. This time there is no pillar of fire, no lightning, no earthquake, no hurricane, no burning bush, no angels. No, no, heaven itself is ripped open. The Father speaks and the Spirit descends into our fallen world. And the Spirit descends on Jesus. Jesus truly is the Messiah, the anointed one, anointed as prophet, priest, and king. Jesus isn't chosen for the task at the Jordan. Rather, Jesus is presented as the chosen one, the one who had been promised thousands of years before, the one who was to come. He has come to lead his people back to the Father. He has come to heal the rift between heaven and earth. Jesus has come to bring about reconciliation in the most astonishing way, and it leaves us breathless. But that's not all. You see, this morning's passage is not just about Jesus. It's also our story. You know, we, we, we might think Christmas is a wonderful story. The life of Jesus intrigues me, it encourages me, it, it challenges me. And yes, I, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, but that was 2,000 years ago. How can this ever be more than just an interesting story, an, an inspiring story? How can this be real for me today or, or on Monday or Tuesday this week? I mean, what difference does this really make on a practical level? And the answer, of course, lies in, in the vivid display of solidarity. First, there's Christ's surprising solidarity with us as he enters the water of the Jordan and identifies himself with sinners like us. And then there's the other surprising solidarity as Jesus rises from the Jordan through the waters of baptism because it is there that we are welcomed into solidarity, into fellowship with him, into communion with him through our baptisms. And Jesus becomes our contemporary. Baptism is our link to Christ, to the death of Christ, to the life of Christ, to renewal in Christ. Father, Son, and Spirit are present at our baptisms too. We are baptized into the name of the Trinity. But you know, there's so much more here than just a symbol. The reading in Acts makes this abundantly clear. Paul meets people who had been baptized into John's baptism, which was still a purification rite tied to the old system. It's not until they're baptized into Jesus, into fellowship with Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes down upon them and they become fully Christian. One of the sad things about discussions regarding baptism since the Reformation is that so often we argue about the wrong things. How much water? And when should somebody be baptized, as a child or as an adult? And the churches have split over it. And no doubt it was done with a sincere desire to be faithful to the scriptures. And we can talk about this more tomorrow night if you like. But the interesting thing is that all sides appeal to the same scriptures. So maybe we're not asking the right question. 
What, what if we were to change the discussion and say, it doesn't really matter when or how you were baptized, there are better questions. And the first question is, how does your baptism shape you? How does your baptism define you? I often come back to this point with my students. We, we live in a world that defines us by what we do. We are defined by our jobs or our roles. I'm a professor, or I'm an electrician, or I'm a nurse, or my son is a teacher, or my daughter works for this or that company, and, and we build a whole hierarchy of importance based on one's occupation in life. Or our society defines us by our address. Where we live matters. People who live in the area of Barton Street have a harder time finding a job than those who live on Scenic Drive. Or our society defines us by what we have, by the size of our house or the size of our cottage, by the income that we have. Or our society admires people with social prestige. Our society celebrates people who are popular. Our society says it matters what the shape of your body is like. And the list goes on and on and on. But in the light of baptism, all of that is an exercise in missing the point. And yet, tragically, we so often are shaped more by what the world says than by what God says. As if doing certain things or having certain things gives us worth, and we spend our lives trying to climb this ladder again and again, always seeking someone else's approval. And this carries into our spiritual lives as well. If only I was a more spiritual person, if only I prayed more, if only I did more, maybe God would love me more. And somehow it's never enough. We doubt the generosity of God. We don't really enjoy our relationship with God. But imagine the difference life would make if we understood that at our baptisms, heaven was ripped open and God said, you're my daughter, you're my son, you are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Remember that the Father said this at the very beginning of Jesus' public life, before he had done anything publicly. He hadn't healed any sick. He hadn't opened up the eyes of any blind person. He hadn't raised any dead. He hadn't preached a single sermon. He hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't done anything yet to earn the Father's approval. And yet the Father said, You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And that belovedness, that pleasure, extends to us if we are in Christ. In Ephesians 1, Paul reminds us that God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he destined us for the adoption of his children through Jesus Christ, according to what? To the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in whom in the beloved 
And Paul will go on to describe how we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. And as Paul continues this amazing celebration of the grace of God, he comes to that place where he reminds us that we have been marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. No wonder elsewhere Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Wow. We enter solidarity with Christ by the Spirit, and we are embraced by the Father. This is life with a capital L. This is what God says about you. This is your basic identity. And so surely it's time to reclaim who we are by virtue of our baptism and bask in the truth of our own belovedness. This is kilometer zero of the Christian life. This is where it all starts for us. It's all grace and undeserved. Now, my cultural heritage does not allow me to be very demonstrative, and my, you know, my character is probably not that way either, and at this stage of my life, it would be hard to change that, but let me say that this is probably a good moment to do a few cartwheels, don't you think? If I could, I would. It's a glorious thing to be a Christian. And, Mark reminds us, this is only the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the first question was, how does baptism define you? How does it shape your identity? The second crucial question is, how do you respond to your baptism? Whether we've been baptized as infants or adults, the question is the same and it's vitally important. How do you respond to your baptism? Because Jesus' baptism both clarified his identity and equipped him for ministry. They go hand in hand. Our baptism clarifies our identity. We are who God says we are. And then it equips us for participating in Christ's mission. And as we begin the journey with Mark this year, we will see that participation is both a matter of how and what. At the Jordan, Jesus reminds us that it's through the way of humiliation, not abuse of power, but humiliation that we will find life. It's a humiliation that leads to death, the death of sinful desires and inappropriate loves or misplaced loyalties. But it's also about regeneration, being reshaped through the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit to res reflect Christ's image, his character, his priorities, his way of life, so that we are called into solidarity with others who need to return to God. And the rest of the gospel shows us again and again that solidarity is both with Jesus, our Emmanuel, and fellow sinners. That, that this is the way that we accomplish the what of the gospel, the restoration, the renewal of all things, so that the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's Son, is seen to be the gospel of the kingdom that ultimately and finally brings about a full reconciliation between heaven and earth through the power of Father, Son, and Spirit.
It is an absolutely glorious thing to be a Christian. So rejoice in your belovedness. Celebrate the fact that God's favor rests on you. Define yourself as God defines you. And then join Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit to live a life of gratitude in a way that brings us and others back to the Father's loving embrace. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Holy Father, for the good news of Jesus' baptism, for your covenant faithfulness and extraordinary commitment to us, your people. Thank you for the love that you lavish upon us. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Help us to own, to delight in our own belovedness. Enable us to see ourselves as you see us. And having been equipped by your spirit in our baptisms, grant us the courage to follow our Lord Jesus Christ in walking the way of humility as we participate in the mission of Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our brother, our savior, and our friend. Amen.